thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. It is now 24 minutes to 10 o'clock and Chris is with us and uh, we're satisfying your curiosity about the world in which we live, your science stories or questions for the world, for, for, for the week. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Okay, Chris, I'm sure a lot of people have experienced this in their lifetime. Loneliness. There's a new study from uh, UCLA. Tell us about that. Yeah, good morning, Reedy. Well, we've known for a really long time that people who are lonely, people who have the weakest social network, people who don't mix with other people so easily, people who aren't part of community activities like going to church or singing in a choir or taking part in team sports, those people have higher rates of morbidity, illness, and also mortality. In fact, the mortality rate of someone in that position is double the mortality rate attributable to being overweight and obese. So it's quite a big health impact. Mm. What no one knew was why. And now there's a study which is in the journal PNAS this week. It's by a researcher called Stephen Cole and his uh, colleagues, including John Cotterino, who I spoke to earlier this week. And they have actually got to the bottom of this biochemically. They've taken a big group of humans who've been followed in Chicago for about 10 years, and they've got blood samples taken every year from their human subjects. They've also got monkeys, which are... Uh, socially isolated in the sense that they've looked at some of the animals that don't mix with other animals as eagerly or show more stress when they do mix with big groups of animals compared with uh, better, more extroverted, better mixing monkeys. Mm. And the same trends emerge in both. And those trends are that in the bloodstream you can see an increase in a certain kind of cell called a monocyte but more specifically, these monocytes, which are part of your cluster of white blood cells that fight infection, they're much more immature than they should be also, when you look at the genes that are turned on in these cells, they turn in up genes which are associated with inflammation and they turn down genes which are concerned with fighting infection. Mm. And this goes some of the way towards explaining why loneliness and social withdrawal seems to be linked to increased illness because you shift your profile of your immune system towards one which is pro-inflammation reduced ability to fight off infection. And what's interesting about the human study mm. is that because they, they could look at the people who had loneliness and then they could look at blood samples going forwards and backwards, they could see that people who became lonely then developed these changes in their blood. Also, people who had some of these changes in their blood were more likely to become lonely too. So one thing can beget the, beget the other. Mm. So the bottom line is that actually being part of a social group and, and uh, intervening so people don't feel lonely is likely to have a huge positive health impact on people, both in terms of their wow. uh, not getting a disease in the first place and fighting off disease. So it's very important to make sure that we, we think about community spirit. Yes, of course, si social isolation has some negative consequences. Uh, that's very fascinating indeed. I have a question here from Bradley. Bradley wants to know, Chris, why does the wind die down in the morning when it's been blowing all night? How does it know it's morning? 
Well, first of all, you have to ask, well, what is the wind? I and mean, I assume we mean the thing that is rushing around through the trees and not what's uh, happening in the bedroom. Ah, I had to do that. <laughs> but um, the, the, the answer is, I, I know Thomas is familiar with this, so I just thought I'd sort of Ouch! bring him on side. <laughs> uh, after all, what he eats, come on. Um, <laughs> The, the winds that we see rushing through the trees and that kind of thing actually occurs because of pressure differences. In order for, for something to move from one place to another, there has to be a difference in pressure. And you have areas of higher pressure and areas of lower pressure around the planet's surface. And this is largely because of the temperature of the air. If you have a, an area of the planet's surface which is being warmed up by input from the sun, then it's going to increase the thermal energy in the air in that part of the planet. There's going to be other places where there's a minimum or a drop in the pressure, and so the air at higher pressure will move from that area to the area of lower pressure, and you will get wind blowing. And so therefore, to a certain extent, it's all going to be dictated by where there's high and low pressures. But this changes during the day. And... If you, if you have been to the seaside, you may be familiar with the idea of a sea breeze. And people say, oh, look, on the uh, ocean, suddenly towards the end of the day, this, this beautiful breeze comes up. Why does this happen? Why do you get this breeze off the sea? Well, the answer is that as the day goes on, the sun heats the ground up, the ground transfers the heat to the air, the air starts to rise because it's got warmer expands and become less, becomes less dense, so it rises, and cooler air coming in off the ocean, which is a more stable temperature all day, moves in towards the shore to replace the air which is going up over the land, and that's your, your basis of your sea breeze. So it's, uh, uh, the reason that you're going to get breezes at different times of the day and night is all going to be down to, to temperature and pressure differences. All right, and uh, Martin in Woodstock, good morning. Uh, good morning, Rudy. Good morning. Uh, I read that uh, men tend to build up iron in their bloodstream and that actually has bad health effects. And as a result, it's a good thing to become a blood donor because donating blood, you lose the iron in your blood. Is this true? Oh, good morning. Well, there is an association between being a blood donor and having a lower mortality rate. And one has to be careful how you interpret that because this is an association not causation and it could be that people who give blood are by definition healthier because unhealthy people are going to struggle to a be allowed to give blood and b be well enough to give blood so therefore you could be looking at a, an artificial group of people on the other hand it's also known that women have a lower rate of heart disease compared with men at any age up until the menopause and at the menopause menstruation stops in other words blood loss from the body ceases and when a woman menstruates and uses loses blood she's also losing iron and so women are relatively iron depleted in their day-to-day uh, -day life before the menopause men are relatively iron replete and one suggestion is that the the fact that men have more iron on board is that because iron can act as a catalyst in certain chemical reactions there's one chemical reaction called the Fenton reaction, which is linked to the production of a particular chemical called pero peroxynitrile, which is uh, a very powerful oxidising agent. People have suggested that this might drive damage to blood vessels and might drive damage to nerve cells in your brain and thus account for part of the ageing process and the furring up of blood vessels and might therefore account for why being a little bit lower in iron is... Uh, health beneficial up until a certain point. Um, I don't think the evidence is entirely clear that, that, that either is the case yet.
And Chris, I saw this on the Naked Scientist's uh, Twitter account. I mean, sugar and this banting diet, very topical at the moment because the man behind all of this, uh, Professor Tim Noakes, is appearing at the Health Professions uh, Council for uh, advising a mother on Twitter to wean her baby off on a high-fat diet. And of course, the medical fraternity up in arms, some dietitians up in arms saying he cannot do that. Uh, he doesn't know the child. He cannot recommend a high-fat diet. Uh, and it's in endangering the life of the child. But obviously the debate around sugar, I saw this on, 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 on your, on your uh, Twitter account, uh, somebody asking, is a sugar calorie different from any other calorie? And what actually happens when we do eat sugar? Well, the, the answer is that sugar is a carbohydrate and that sugars come in various forms. They come in what's called intrinsic forms and extrinsic forms. Intrinsic forms are things like if you've got, um, say, a fruit that you eat, then there will be sugar which is bound up into the flesh of the fruit and also chemically bound up in bigger molecules like starch within, say, an apple. But there will also be sugars which, if I go and buy a, a sugar-sweetened drink, then dissolved in the drink will be enormous amounts of refined sugar. The difference between those two, if, if I looked at, say, and the experiment we did on The Naked Scientist last week actually was, um, we said, well, if we take half a pint of apple juice, then that's got the equivalent of eight apples in it. We then tried to eat the same number of apples mm. in the same time as it took to drink the equivalent number of calories of apple juice. And the answer is you can't do it because during the program I was on, mm. I ate about one and a half apples in the time it took the guy sitting opposite me to drink half a pint of apple juice. So he had consumed a calorie burden equivalent to eight apples just by quaffing down a drink Whoa. because the people who make the drink, their, their machine has done the job your teeth would have to do and then your stomach would have to do. And the difference is all these sugars go straight into your stomach, mm. get squirted into your small intestine and refined sugars that are just floating around in the things that you drink and, and eat, they are very rapidly absorbed straight into the bloodstream and they trigger a big surge in the insulin hormone, which lowers blood sugar and turns sugars into fats all around your body. Whereas if you eat things which are uh, soluble fibres, they are complex carbohydrates and starches and things, because they take, A, a lot of chewing up to break them down, B, some chemical digestion in your stomach to break them down, mm. C, more chemical digestion in your small intestine to, you've guessed it, break them down, then it takes much longer for those calories to be turned into sugars that can then be absorbed and therefore, A, you feel hung less hungry for longer, so you're more likely to eat less. B, the bacteria in your gut probably also have some dibs into what you're eating, so that depletes the calories a bit. And C, you don't have this big spike of sugars going straight into your bloodstream, which then doesn't trigger this big spike of insulin and then trigger you becoming fat. So what the uh, advice that's now being offered is that carbohydrates should make up about half of the calories that you consume in a day, but the refined extrinsic sugars, the things like glucose and sucrose and fructose and stuff, that should make up only about 5% of the calories in your diet. So fine to have carbohydrates. They're not thought to be linked to any kind of health disbenefit. They're not bad for you, but sugars are. So try and keep the sugar down, but the carbohydrate high. Hmm, very interesting. Okay, and then um, who came in first? It was, is it Chrissy in Bryanston? Yes, hi. Hi. Um, yes, I've got a question for Chris. Um, I just wanted to know how um, baby's waste are processed in the mother's womb. I just really always wanted to know that. Okay, are you pregnant, Chrissy? 
Uh, no, I'm not pregnant, but I've got two kids. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, Chris? Well, the answer is that when a baby begins to develop, it starts off as a, as a ball of cells, and that ball of cells then in, what does what's called invaginate on itself. It's rather like you pushing your hand in through the side of a balloon, so there's a sort of fist-shaped object inside the balloon wrapped up in membranes. Those are the, the outer layers of the balloon, and that's why babies effectively are born in a bag, because, and they develop in a bag, because they grew inside a bag of their own cells. Where your wrist is, if you were to follow my analogy of pushing your hand in through the side of a balloon, where your wrist is, the wrist is the umbilical cord, which is the, the tissue which is going out towards a structure on the wall of the uterus, the womb, called the placenta, and that's also made by the baby, and this grows early in development very aggressively into the wall of the uterus, the, the womb, and what it does is it brings the circulation of the mother very, very close to the circulation of the baby, so there's blood of the mother all around and meshwork of tiny blood vessels from the baby and this is an exchange surface. So all of the baby's metabolites and waste goes out down the umbilical cord, gets exchanged or dumped into the circulation of the mother, and at the same time, goodies, nutrients, oxygen, get picked up by the baby's placental blood flow, brought back into the baby, and that's used to deliver calories so the baby can grow. It's used to deliver oxygen so the baby's cells can continue to do what's called respire and grow. And uh, also, as we've mentioned, it takes away the waste. But, and here's the thing that will make everyone go, ooh, mm -hmm. the kidney of a baby develops pretty early on during development, and it goes through lots of phases of refinement as time goes on, but it starts to filter blood from very early in development, and the blood starts to be turned into urine, and the baby basically grows in a bag of its own wee. So all of us have spent at least nine months of our lives bathing <laughs> in our own pee. <laughs> uh, because babies don't eat anything, though, there's no number twos in there. Yeah, that's very reassuring. And then I've got an SMS here. Uh, Chris, what actually happens when your skin burns? Well, it burns. Hmm. And when, when we get burned, either chemically or thermally, if you touch something very hot, or by radiation, say, for instance, ultraviolet radiation, what's happened is that all of those three things have deposited a lot of energy into the skin which is of sufficient intensity and dose in order to physically harm or damage cells and when those cells break down or are harmed they release inflammatory chemicals inflammagens and these inflammatory chemicals then act like a, a beacon or a warning signal to the immune system saying hey damage is happening here and then parts of the immune system come in and begin to clean up the damage encourage other cells to grow to replace the damage, but at the same time, the chemicals that are released, as well as attracting the immune system, they also trigger sensory nerve fibres in the skin, which signal pain and signal swelling and signal redness, and all of those things together you interpret as, say, sunburn or a chemical burn or a thermal burn on your skin. And it's there to, A, alert you to the fact that you've hurt yourself, don't do this again, it's probably a bad idea, B, to encourage you to guard the area because it's injured and you need to look after it while it heals itself and C, all of these factors, the pain and the swelling and the redness, they are actually all part and parcel of the inflammatory process which is renewing the tissue and repairing it so that eventually your skin's going to recover. Mm, okay, let's go to, um, da, 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 I think it's Margaret who phoned in from Soweto. Good morning. 
Hi, Margaret. Well, the thing I'd say is that the microwave energy in a microwave, the, the actual microwaves themselves, are unlikely to do any harm because although they make things a bit warmer, they're probably not going to change the, the chemistry of the food or the chemistry of you very much. The thing I would be very careful about, though, if something's been reconditioned, is to make sure that the person who did it was competent electrically. Because if they've miswired the thing or they haven't earthed it properly, then it's possible that the case could go live and you could get an electric shock from it. So it's always, always worth checking out who has reconditioned these things. As long as it's working and it's been well reconditioned by a competent electrician, there shouldn't be any reason why, it should be, why, why you shouldn't use it. It should be fine. Okay. And then uh, here's a... Uh... Uh, a tweet from Pakani says, when something decomposes, does it produce worms or worms go, go into it to decompose it, basically? Right. Well, the, the world is this amazing, rich ecosystem where everything is feeding off everything else or feeding into everything else. When a human dies or an animal dies or a plant dies, it doesn't matter. It is a source of energy and nutrients. It's a source of raw materials that other consumers can plug into and use to feed themselves so they can grow too. And so when, when we die or you, you bury your fish when it died and you, or you flush it down the loo, it doesn't really matter mm. what, then that fish stops fending off the attack or assault of potential Break, break down uh, particles, that's a silly thing to say, uh, things, things that break it down. And the flesh begins to break down under the action of bacteria, fungi, and other things which can also come along. Um, other animals will, will eat something, carrion feeders will mm. eat something, and they, they'll basically um, come to an area where there is a food source. They can smell it out because something that's decaying or dead releases various chemicals that things that want to eat that can smell and that goes for big animals right down to even bacteria bacteria can smell they effectively have chemical receptors on their surface and they can detect when or what the chemistry of their environment is and so they can move towards areas where there are likely food sources by swimming and so all these things move in and they then break down using enzymes and other chemical chemicals to break down um, the tissue of whatever you've you've has died plant or, or animal and turn it back into micronutrients that they then take up and use and then something else comes along and eats them okay david in midrand good morning oh good morning how are you fine what's your question well basically i just want to find out from chris why is it that when you love someone you get butterflies and you <laughs> get nervous is there any scientific explanation on that yeah we've had we've had this question before about four or five years ago but it's fine it's fun to answer it again chris are you going to ask someone out, David? <laughs> hey, David, are you planning to ask someone out? I beg your pardon? Are you planning to ask someone out? Oh, yes, indeed. But the problem is that I'm, I'm getting nervous and, I'm, you know, it's, 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 it's quite difficult. <laughs> oh, Chris. Yeah. David, we won't tell anyone. What, what's her name? <laughs> what's her name? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, her name is Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Does she know you like her? Oh, yeah, yeah, she does. She does, but you just need that final push to actually do something about it. Oh, sweet. <laughs> does, she listen, does she listen to Talk Radio 702? <laughs> Chris, stop it. <laughs> do you think she's listening to you now, David? 
I can hear you properly. Do you think she's listening to you now on the radio? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm quite sure she's not listening. Oh, okay. All right. That's a shame, isn't it? Well, anyway, look, if anyone knows David and they also know Elizabeth, you should put a word in for him because he sounds like a jolly nice guy. Yes, he does. Uh, the reason that you get butterflies in your tummy and this can happen with any situation, is because of your nervous system. You have something called your fight-or-flight reaction. There are two parts of your automatic nervous system that's there to keep you healthy and alive and save your life under certain circumstances. There's your sympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic nervous system. When you're undergoing rest and digest, so you've had a big meal and you're feeling happy and comfortable and not stressed, that's your parasympathetic nervous system telling you to stay calm and it's making your your gut have lots of blood so you can break down uh, food and you can relax. On the other hand, when you get nervous or stressed about something, whether that's an animal coming after you, your boss coming after you, your wife coming after you, your exams are coming, your driving test is coming, or there's that special person you want to ask out, all of these things are stressful and they strongly activate your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight reaction. And when this kicks in, it does a number of things. One of them is it activates the adrenal glands, which are on top of your kidneys on each side. They release a lot of the chemicals noradrenaline and adrenaline into your bloodstream. They also uh, act on the heart and your lungs and your eyes and the salivary glands in your mouth. They turn off your intestines, Mm. and all of those things together, the surge of these hormones and so on, contribute to that feeling nervous, sweaty palms, feeling a bit shaky, can't get your words out right. Pupils get very big because you're trying to see far and get lots of light into your eyes, so you can't read things up close properly so easily. One of the things that happens is that the supply of blood to your intestines gets strongly shut off, and your intestines, mus- the muscles of your intestines, get shut off so that you don't consume any calories or blood digesting food. You can divert all of those resources into your muscles so you can run away or fight someone. And the sensation you experience when that shutting off of your abdominal viscera happens, that is the sinking feeling in your tummy or the fluttering in your tummy it's the muscles being deactivated and your stomach literally relaxing and dangling down inside your abdomen so that you're getting ready to run away but in this case david don't run away ask her out and i'm sure she'll say yes Okay, David, just don't give it details about what's happening to your stomach and your pupils and all of that. Don't say that. No, don't do that. Don't do that. That would, that would, that, don't do that. (laughs) Good luck to you, David. And uh, basically what you're feeling is normal. Chris, thank you so very much. We speak again next week. That's right. Bye. We'll podcast that with Chris Smith, of course. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.